Hello and welcome to In Unison, the podcast for choral conductors, composers, and choristers, where we interview members of our choral community to talk about new music, new and upcoming performances, and discuss the interpersonal and social dynamics of choral organizations in the San Francisco Bay Area and beyond. Beyond. We are your hosts. I am Zane Fiala, Artistic Director of the International Orange Chorale of San Francisco. And I'm Giacomo Di Gregoli, a tenor in IOCSF, the Golden Gate Men's Chorus, and the San Francisco Symphony Chorus. And this is... In Unison! This week, we catch up with prolific opera, theater, orchestral, and choral composer, and dear friend of IOCSF, Jake Heggie about his influences, his latest works, and his excitement about the coming of spring. Joining us today, we have American composer Jake Heggie. And Jake is a very well-established composer and pianist, best known for his operas and art songs, as well as for his collaborations with internationally renowned performers and writers, such as Kiri Teikanawa, Renee Fleming, Joyce DiDonato, Susan Graham, Frederica von Stade, and many, many others. Jake studied at the American College in Paris and concluded his studies at UCLA, receiving both his bachelor's and master's degrees there. Jake has written nine full-length operas and several one-acts, nearly 300 art songs, concerti, chamber music, choral, and orchestral works. A Guggenheim Fellow, a frequent guest artist and master teacher all over the country, and the recipient of many prestigious awards, Jake currently lives in San Francisco with his husband, Bay Area actor Kurt Branham. Jake, did I miss anything? No, that's, that sounds about right. I recognize that person. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That sounds familiar. That's yeah. important. Yeah. <laughs> Jake, take we- it away. Jake, we usually start these conversations with uh, an icebreaker, and I had one for you. Um, both of us are, uh, f- uh, I gather, fans of Barbara Streisand, both uh, well, both literally and euphemistically, I gather. <laughs> uh, if she had sung one of your songs that you wrote when you were 11, what would it have been? Well, first of all, if she had sung one of my songs when I was 11, she could have really had a career. Um, <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> people, people who need people. No, she was a she was a huge influence on me as a kid because uh, the voice was so extraordinary, and there was always a sense of humor and a sense of fun. It was always connected to something very deep and emotional or joyful. There was the full range. She was a wonderful actor, and her movies were very popular. Um, but uh, the 11 years old. I actually started writing songs for her when I was about maybe 13 or 14. But um, I wrote a song called When I Look at You that was all of her vocalisms in there, the the big leaps, the octave leaps and the soaring lines. And uh, it's actually not a bad song for someone that young, but uh, we'll just leave it in the trunk and, you know, imagine what could have happened. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Big star. She would, have, she would have been somebody. She could have been a contender. Exactly. <laughs> oh, Barbara. <laughs> um, and one other thought, uh, just to, as an icebreaker as well. Uh, Zane and I were sort of thinking about what it must be like to be uh, a composer and sort of hear your music come back to you or the, the impact of what that feels like. You're sitting in the audience for the premiere of one of your operas. What's going through your mind? Well, first and foremost, I'm sending positive energy to the performers and to the stage and to the pit and everyone backstage because they've worked so hard and they've put so much of themselves into it. They have to believe it and believe in it so much to deliver a performance. And so I, in that moment, I'm just wishing everything good for them and hoping they deliver the performances that they are, they'll be proud of and happy with. Um, and then I'm also sitting back and listening to where, especially with a new opera at a premiere, because that's its first day, that's its birthday, because that's the day the final character shows up, which is the audience, you know, and you don't 
really know what an opera or a stage piece like of that size and scope is until it's fully dressed on the stage with the orchestra with the audience and then you start to get a sense of what it really is and so then i start to think this is going on a little long this seems to be not working this seems to i try to look at it that way too because then i have work ahead of me as well but in the moment it's celebration and gratitude a hundred percent is it common to have changes to an opera after its premiere? Oh God, yes. <laughs> I mean, when there's that foreign to me, so. that many notes and that length of work, um, you know, it's a stage piece. And like I said, the the last character to show up is the audience, and they show up the day of the premiere, and that's when you really start to learn about it. Because you know, when you're creative people you get very close to your work and it's easy to lose perspective and nothing gives you a perspective like an audience you know or several audiences over a period of time mm -hmm. um and usually i find with with my work it's by the third production that it finally is in its final form the first one is when i'm learning and we've done a lot of work on the front end to try to get it in the best shape possible um but then you learn about it at the premiere. Then you do work on it at the second production. You hear about you hear the work that you've done to know if it's the right work or if there's more that needs to be done or or you've overcorrected things. And then the third production is when it usually is uh, is settled. Uh, I've been lucky enough to have multiple productions of my opera, so but that's been my pattern. But yeah, I think it's uh, it's incumbent upon a theater composer to be willing to change and rework things after a premiere um, and after you've started learning things about the piece because there's so many things going on you're, you're telling a story you're developing characters their interactions their personal lives the things that define them the things that shape them um, with music and action and words you know it's, it's a lot yeah who do you, who do you trust for feedback ah that's a very good question because I tell young composers all the time that they need to surround themselves with friendly ears and who love them, love their work, want it to succeed, but are going to be honest with them. They're going to be kind. <laughs> we all appreciate kindness, <laughs> but they're going to tell them the truth, you know? Um, and I need people to tell me that if I ask them afterwards, please be listening and let me know, you know, what you think. Cause I really need to know. Um, and try to do that beforehand too, like at workshops along the way, whether something's going on too long, whether it's not enough. And, uh, you know, if, if, if they're telling me, if attention keeps going to one particular place, that's a good sign that that place needs attention. Although it might not be exactly that place, it might be something that happens before that leads to a moment where that's confusing or that's not working. And then you also have to decide, is that because the staging doesn't work? or the sets or the costumes, or was a role miscast? You know, there's all of that because with an opera as well, you know, the audience is taking in so much. They're taking in all this visual information as well as all the music and the characters and everything that if things don't fit or make sense visually, they're not gonna hear the score mm. because they'll be focused on all the other stuff. Just why, you know, in choral writing, it is, you know, you guys are standing there singing and still it's all about that sound and you know the vibration and the waves and the shape of it, which is a very different experience than a stage or theater piece right. where there's a lot that could distract you. And I, I've had pieces that I think have suffered because of poor productions out of the gate. Um, and then I've had others that I have done better than I could have imagined because the production was amazing. You know, So people could really experience the piece as I wanted them to hear it. So as the composer of the opera, you don't have quite as much to do with the instructions for the staging and the choices that are made in that regard? Uh, no, I mean, I can weigh in, but those, those decisions belong to directors and designers and, you know, people who are gifted in those areas. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you, you know, usually I'll, I'll request that it be people who I can collaborate with and who will listen to me when I really object to something that I think is interfering with storytelling. Um, or development or something but you never know and i believe you know those creative people have to have the chance to explore as well because i want to work with people where i learn something from them too that has that's the same with soloists with singers with instrumentalists with choirs you know if if i haven't micromanaged it to within an inch of its life which i try not to do i try to leave room for a conductor and uh and a, a team a creative team 
to bring their perspective to it, um, then I can learn something from it. And that's one of the most exciting parts, I think, of the whole thing is that I, I do my best work. I mean, I do, I do the best I can and put something on paper, send it out into the world, and then hope that it's flexible enough that it can take many different perspectives and interpretations. Because if a piece can only be done one way, it's not a very good piece, you know? It needs to have that flexibility because there's going to be so many different ideas coming to it. If you, even even something as great as the the Bach B minor Mass, which was a formative piece for me, I must have listened to you know 20, 30 different recordings of that when I first discovered it, and every single one of them is so different, and yet it's the same notes, it's the same thing, you know, the same texts, everything, but it is completely different interpretations. And that piece is open to that. Um, and people are eager to, to take their, make their mark on that piece. So uh, those are the kind of pieces I try to write. I get a little fed up with composers who over micromanage every single thing so that it's in 11.16 and then it's in 3.8 and then there's this is marking and then that marking and like, ugh, stop. <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I do know <laughs> <laughs> sure you, been, do. you know well as with iocsf being so focused on new music we get yeah. and and promoting under um underrepresented composers we often have scores put in front of us that are by you know less experienced composers and and some of them want to micromanage and we end up with scores with you know di the dynamic markings and hairpins. You know, like four different sets of hairpins in in one measure, trying to trying to convey some idea that they had. And even then, it's not the clearest conveyance of yeah. that idea. And How so, about yeah. crescendo, decrescendo, excel? Yeah, <laughs> faster, yeah, <exactly>. slower. <laughs> exactly. Move it here. Slow down. <laughs> linger. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so um, you know, this is a choral music podcast. So mm -hmm. while a lot of your compositions are, are operas and art songs, and there aren't quite as many standalone choral works. Um, I thought we could pivot into talking about choral works, and I wanted to start off by asking you, so when you, because there aren't as many standalone choral works, when you do decide to write a choral work, what are your main motivations and inspirations? What drives the decision to write something for choir, commissions aside? Mm -hmm. um, storytelling. You know, I, I'm a theater person, so everything springs from transformative journeys, emotional storytelling, um, something like that through the voice. Uh, the voice has always figured prominently and central uh, to my creative life since I was really little. Even though I started with piano lessons, it was singing that was around me all the time. You know, we talked about the influence of Barbara Streisand. She's a storyteller, you know. And those were the voices that I was always most interested in, were solo voices that told stories. And that just naturally went then into musical theater and into opera. Um, but along the way, I also fell in love with choral singing. And um, I participated in choirs growing up in Ohio. Um, in high school, I played for the jazz choir. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, and then in college, I was playing for choirs, especially at UCLA. There was a man named uh, William Hatcher who conducted the uh, a cappella choir, and there were the madrigal singers. And uh, I, I played for all those choirs, and that's when I first wrote the, those pieces, uh, you know, mm. Faith Disquiet. I wrote mm -hmm. this when I was a grad student in the 80s for um, the UCLA a cappella choir, and they oh. took them on tour. It was a miracle. Um, and I also participated in the choirs, and uh, there was always a big choral union at the very end, you know, around the holidays, the end of the year, um, where all the different choirs sang together at Royce Hall. It was just an amazing experience. So I think that sense of community and storytelling um, through multiple voices is always what draws me to choral writing and certainly in my operas it's part of storytelling and it's you know that beautiful i mean there's just nothing like the sounds you can get from a choir um there's nothing you that can replicate it in the orchestra uh or electronically anything it's just a magical special uh sound unto itself so uh, i think 
it just inspires me and it's uh you know i wish i did get more commissions for it you know because i do tend to work on commission and i do really big pieces that take years of my life mm -hmm. so it isn't often that i just get to sigh on the side write something just for fun uh, because I'm very busy with these professional engagements, but it's uh, it's something that figures very, uh, I think is very central to who I am as a composer in my development. Like Peter Grimes was one of the first operas that like really hit me over the head. And the choruses in Peter Grimes, of course, are unbelievable. And those, those are key moments to me in any of the operas that I know uh, and have figured prominently in the operas that I've written. So you're you're a singer, a performer, a, 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 an instrumentalist yourself. I would not call myself a singer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think anyone would well, call me a singer. You could call I, me a bad singer. Yeah. Well, may, maybe, but your compositions actually do. I mean, it's it's clear to me when I look at your compositions, especially for choral works, that like you have sung these lines. Like the voice oh, yeah. leading is just beautiful, and you can see yeah. that you've thought about sort of what that feels like. Yeah. My my question, or sort of the thing that I wanted to follow up and, and wondering is like, you've written opera, you've written choral pieces is there an instrument you and, and most of these things i think you you have touched in some way or you've experienced mm -hmm. in some way or participated in some way is there anything you want to write for that like isn't it's a crazy instrument or some setting or something that you haven't touched yet you're like oh that would be fun like i don't uh, the theremin or some technical thing or i don't know what <laughs> where your your fantasy and imagination might lie. i've written for a lot of instruments i i'm really eager you know i've written a lot for clarinet i've written a lot for cello those are two of my favorite instruments i've written a lot for string quartet i love that ensemble um and strings figure centrally to every orchestral piece that i write or the orchestra in my operas the the strings are central to everything um but in terms of like odd instruments that i would <laughs> like to write for or incorporate i i don't know i haven't thought of one that's <laughs> interesting um you know and i've written for different types of countertenors so i've written for those voices and i haven't written anything I, I actually i take that back just this past year i for the first time wrote for coloratura soprano which is a crazy crazy voice you know and i'd never really written for that so i just wrote some songs for a coloratura soprano and uh that, that that voice just sort of baffles me i think it's just one that i have to get used to writing uh for um but uh, in terms of like like a weird instrument now i'd love to incorporate a theremin into like an opera score that would be kind of cool if it was the right story it's like uh i've also thought about i'd love to write an opera at some point where uh a sax quartet or quintet is central to it you know along with some strings and percussion um but you know those are dreams but in terms of weird instruments like a sophoclide or a serpent or <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess it depends on the story you want to yeah. tell, right? Like you're thinking of the instruments that would set to the story. So yeah, it has to enhance the storytelling to me. The whole process, you guys, to me, I, you know, I, I use a metaphor as I liken the whole thing to a well, um, a well that is a human experience or emotion or story, something really rich and deep, profound that, you know, uh, an artist is drawn into to explore and, you know, a painter is going to come up with something, a sculptor is going to come, a choreographer will come up with something. And it's my job as a composer, if I'm drawn into that well, to sort of really explore it. And if I'm working with a writer, the writer goes in there and digs around and then comes out with something. I take that and I go in and that might, the text might change. It might be rewritten. The whole thing might be reconceived based on my experience in there. Then we come up with a, a score and we present that to uh, whoever's performing it. And then if they're really good performers, they don't just look at what's on the page. They go into that well, too, to see what that experience is like, the fullness of it, and what they will bring to it. And that, like I said, that's kind of what I live for, to see what perspective they will bring. Um, Gene Shear, who's my most frequent you know, uh, opera writing partner, uh, he and I, we have to visualize it to write it. So we'll have this picture of what it's going to look like as we're putting a score together. And generally, it looks nothing like that when we get onto the stage because the director and designer are taking their cue from what we've written and they're going into the well and coming up with a new vision for what that piece is. Um, so, it, th but like I said, that's also part of the fun. That's kind of what I live for is learning from other people about the work and constantly challenging myself to do something different. Um, 
something where I'm not repeating myself because I don't I don't think any artist just wants to repeat. We want to explore, we want to grow, we want to challenge ourselves. Even if sometimes that means the work doesn't succeed, at least you've learned something from it. You know, in any artistic career, there's going to be a lot of roadkill that you just like, <laughs> it's off to the side. You're just like, okay, don't look over there. Look over here. Look at this. <laughs> well, that didn't work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I wanted to ask about, you mentioned um, chorus movements and choruses within operas and that, that um, some of the most moving operas for you um, are ones where the chorus is, uh, has a really central role. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about the role of the chorus and chorus movements or, or parts of an opera and, and maybe what the commonalities and differences are between that and standalone choral works? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, in, in an opera, a chorus is in character. They are part of the story and the storytelling and the action. Um, so they are, you know, either, you know, peasants or slaves or, you know, Romans or, <laughs> you know, or villagers or, you know, the police force or, you know, they're, they have a role. They have their, their characters. And so that's where their music springs from, what that, what that population is missing or what they want. And that's key to theater is what do these characters want? Why are they on the stage? What happened just before they went on the stage? And what is keeping them there? And so that's where the music springs from. It's part of the storytelling, it's part of the action. Um, and uh, I find, you know, successful choral writing in opera um, doesn't always translate to successful a cappella choral writing, you know, um, because the stage, the, the dramatic lyric stage is very different from standalone a cappella work. Like Randall Thompson's Alleluia is, you know, glorious and beautiful, but it really won't work on an opera stage, right. you know. It's just a, a very, very different kind of writing. Um, and it's, you know, and what is the delineation is what the composer's intention was, mm. you know, did the composer intend for this to be a serene moment or a big moment with a, an acapella choir on their own? That's a very different task than writing for characters in, a, in an opera or a stage work. Yeah. Um, and that's where it's it's been tricky for me because I am primarily a theater composer, which is why telling a story of some kind with the choir is is very important uh, to me, and it's what helps me write effectively. But if if also if there's a great text or a great poem that I'm setting, it it can it can be an internal. A transformative journey that I think can be illuminated by many voices. Uh, like "Stop This Day and Night with Me," mm -hmm. the Walt Whitman uh, poem is yeah. is one of those. It was written for the King's singers on a commission. At first, I didn't know what I wanted to write. I had just recently finished uh, Moby Dick. And so I thought I would write something by an illuminist uh, poet from from that period. And I went to a scholar, a friend who, who knows all of that literature and poetry. And I thought, it's for the King Singers. It's this many voices. This is what, the kind of feel that I'm looking for. And he sent me this Whitman text and it was exactly what I needed. Um, and it was just really inspiring. And it really is about an illuminating moment within yourself. mentioned to me previously about uh, some feelings you have about setting Whitman poetry. Um, would you like to expand on that? <laughs> yeah, I had never set Whitman uh, previously. I, I feel a little bit about setting Whitman like I do about setting Shakespeare. You know, it doesn't, does it need music? It's so musical all on its own. And so, yeah. so I've often been at a loss for setting uh, Whitman or Shakespeare. Uh, have I ever set Shakespeare? I don't think I ever have. Um, because there is so much music innate in the language that 
sometimes when you set it to music, it actually doesn't add anything. It limits it um, versus the, the music that's built into the language. Um, that's why, it, you know, looking for the right text uh, at the right moment in your creative life is kind of everything, you know, finding the thing that invites music, you know, words and experiences that invite music in rather than stand on their own where the music is just like an extra layer that doesn't add anything. Yeah. Um, I just had the joy of working with uh, Margaret Atwood, the great Canadian writer. And uh, she set, she wrote some poems that I set for uh, a baritone named Josh Hopkins hmm. called songs for murdered sisters. She's a novelist and so used to telling the story all on her own, you know, with the novel. Um, but she's also a brilliant poet. And she wrote these really spare, beautiful poems with language that can be sung. And also that leaves a lot of room for music to give us information that the, the words alone cannot. Those are the kind of texts that you have to find. a couple of weeks ago with uh, Joel Chapman of Multi, and, mm -hmm. and he wrote a piece called Interdependence, which was very much written for this moment, and he felt um, compelled to complement his piece with a sort of uh, uh, visual component because of sort of where we are right now, and he sort of wanted it to, to, to be like that. On uh, and not not only because I think for for the the sided, but because he also wanted to create these access points for a larger audience, sort of a non-hearing audience as well. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about, in terms of the same way that like adding music to uh, to Margaret Atwood's poetry sort of uh, augmented it, what are your thoughts about the relationship between choral music specifically and sort of this, both this moment right now in terms of like trying to make the most of these like Zoom and streaming things, um, and then in general, this sort of new movement that seems to be happening where you'll go to a live performance and you'll see visuals or things that are sort of thrown up on the wall. Do you feel like that those are um, augmentations to the, to the music? I mean, when you see them, if they're not <laughs> something that you as the composer intended, do you feel like, what is happening? Well, uh, you know, the thing is, as a composer, all you could do is write it and put it out there. You know, um, what we do creatively, what you guys do, what a choir does is you you work really hard to put something out there so that you can give it away, right? Mm -hmm. And ultimately we have to give it away. And it's the same thing with one of my scores. I give it away and then someone has a vision or an idea and they present it that way. And it doesn't matter if I like it or not. Mm -hmm. It was meaningful to that creative person in that moment. And it maybe it touches someone, you know? I, I've been to productions of my operas. Um, oh, one of them was the Waiting for Guffman production of Dead Man Walking. And I just... <laughs> Were there cinders coming out I of just, no, they it? I just... They just burned the whole was, place down. It was, it was so bad. And I was in the <laughs> audience, like, dying, sinking into my seat. And then this audience went bonkers and stood and cheered and screamed. And there were people crying. And I thought, well, what the heck do I know? You know? you just never know what, how, how something is going to reach people or touch them. Yeah. Um, and so that's why we, we let it go. We give it away. We put it out there and you have to trust. And yeah, there's going to be things that work and things that don't work. That's why I feel about this time. We have to try all these things. Um, people want to stay connected. People want to use the tools that they, that they have at, uh, accessible to be creative and to reach people and to express themselves, to use their voice. Everyone has a voice, you know, we want to use it in whatever way we can that will be helpful to others and connect us and do what the performing arts do, which is gather us, open up a dialogue, open up a bridge or a door to, to, to a different perspective. 
Um, so I think it's all valid. Do I like it all? No. <laughs> am I am I kind of over the online stuff? Yes, I think we all are, but um, but it's where we are right now. So we just have to keep exploring and learning, and we will be back in the room together before you know it, um, and having other experiences and other you know uh, conversations. But you know, first of all. Yes, there will be things that I disagree with when I see them, but what an honor that my work inspired these people to come up with an idea. Um, that That is extraordinary. I always go back to gratitude that I was lucky enough to be the person to put that on the page and then it inspired someone else. That's just kind of all miraculous. Uh, so uh, really, I just have nothing but gratitude about the whole thing. How do you, this is, this is maybe a kind of a question out of left field, but that's okay. How do you avoid predictability within your compositions? <laughs> um, you know, I just try to let myself be surprised, but um, I do want to avoid predictability. But what I don't want to avoid is inevitability. Because what we're looking for, at least what I'm looking for creatively, is something that feels inevitable, like it had to go that way, and yet it was surprising. Um, so that, you know, like one of the big compliments I ever had was I spent five years writing the opera Moby Dick. It was really, really, really challenging. And at the premiere, which went amazingly well against all odds um, and was hugely successful this woman came up to me and she says well I don't know why no one's thought of doing Moby Dick as an opera before I mean it's so obvious how you do it <laughs> you know and at first I kind of wanted to poke her in the eye but then I thought you know that's actually a huge compliment it means it felt inevitable it had to be that way I remember thinking that about like early on when I was a student, thinking, listen to pieces by Ravel, and they're so surprising, and yet, of course, they have to go that way, you know? It's inevitable. And that's what we're looking for, I, at least I am as a composer, is something that feels surprising and inevitable at the same time. Predictable? I hope not, you know? But, you know, other people can say that all I can do is write, you know, and write what feels inevitable and surprising to me. You know? Yeah. How do you do that? How do you figure I out, how just, do you do it? I constantly look for things that challenge me and take, give me new perspective. So, you know, like opera on the stage, it goes from Dead Man Walking to It's a Wonderful Life to Moby Dick to Three Decembers to Intelligence, this new opera that I'm writing, which is about women spies in the South during the Civil War. And it, I'm doing it with an amazing cast and an amazing director, um, a woman named Jawale Zoller from Urban Bush Women in Brooklyn, and her company is going to be part of it. So again, something that is just a totally different perspective. It's going to challenge me in new ways to come up with a different language and a different way of expressing it. Um, but exactly what you said, ooh, that's yeah. what I want, right? Uh, but uh, we can't let that moment pass by. I have never heard this story before. You're like, oh. kind of setting my hair on fire. Like, I'm, this is crazy. <laughs> what it is looks this? like your hair already was. Uh, it's <laughs> gone. It's gone. It's happened once or twice before, Jake. <laughs> uh, I bit my tongue on that one. <laughs> uh, but no, I've, n I've never heard the story. I mean, it's, there's a there's a, a, a female spies in the oh, Civil yeah. War. Oh, yeah. What uh, is the story? They were they were very important during the civil war. And of course we don't know about them because they're women. And in this particular case, it's mm -hmm. black women and white women. Mm -hmm. um, so of course we don't know those stories because it was rewritten and covered over. It's like when you, did you see the movie hidden figures a few mm -hmm. years ago? Yes. About these amazing mathematicians and phys uh, you know, physics. What do you call them? Physics people astrophysicists or, astrophysicists. Yes. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I know. I'm, obviously I'm not one um, who, saved the the space program but were you know basically erased in favor of white men because they were black women mm -hmm. and uh i i'm so angered and sick of hearing that that i uh when i heard this story from a docent at the smithsonian this is over five years ago that i first heard this story i just thought that that has to be the next one it's just mm. it literally set me on fire 
Um, and that, I, that's one of the things that I need too. I need something that literally sets me on fire where I am shivering with music. I don't know how the music goes yet, but I know it's there. Um, those are the projects that I say yes to. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them are surprising. Um, but that again, we're looking for inevitability and surprise, right? Um, so yeah, so the, the the gamut of works is is very very broad because I want to keep challenging myself. I don't want to repeat myself. So that that's part of the way that I do that. Um, they they all sound very very different to me. Like you wouldn't mistake an aria from Dead Man Walking for an aria from It's a Wonderful Life or from Intelligence or from Moby Dick. You know, um, because I'm trying to create sound worlds for each of those pieces. But I still think it sounds like I wrote them. I mean, I think I, I do have a language that I that sounds like me. But mm-hmm. I do try to learn and challenge and uh, and you know create different musical worlds each time. Yeah. Sometimes more successfully than others. Like we said, roadkill. <laughs> <laughs> Choral music in the United States and the sort of rise of the choral movement from like the 70s into the 80s feels like it was very much fueled by a political and social movement that was happening at the time. Um, and that's nothing new, right? Like I think in Eastern Europe, that has been the tradition for forever. Um, and sort of the Americans kind of have caught up in the 70s and 80s and it's been sort of moving forward till now. What do you see as the role today of the choir in relation to what needs to be said in terms of are there stories or are there things that jump to your mind that you're like, wow, what an instrument to use a choir to say the things that need to be said right now. I mean, has that sort of crossed your mind? Do you think that there's a responsibility there? Oh my God. Yes. When you think about all the social upheaval we've had with, you know, uh, gender rights and, you know, gender violence and Black Lives Matter and all of these social movements that are happening now. And what do we see? Not only do we see people marching, we see people singing together. Michelle Cousseau. Michelle Cousseau. Which is the most uplifting thing. During the AIDS crisis in the 80s, gay men's choruses started forming and formed these, uh, you know, big choral societies all over the country and saved people's lives, you know, as well as raised awareness, brought people together, created community. I mean, we have that need now, uh, it seems to me. Those, the, the choir has been central to bringing people together, giving them a home, giving them a voice that their voice matters as part of a community. And that when we when we sing collectively, it's more powerful. Um, you know, I mean, that's pretty basic information, but I have to tell you, um, when I was in my early thirties, I was invited by some two former teachers of mine at UCLA to uh, do a piece that they'd written for uh, the gay men's course in Los Angeles. I was at UCLA and uh, uh, I played keyboards. There were four keyboards in this piece. And then it went to um, the gala choruses, uh, Gay and Lesbian Association of Choruses in Denver. And we did it in Dallas too. And it was the first time, because I was very closeted in my 20s. Uh, I had a lot of trouble dealing with uh, being gay or you know accepting it. And suddenly I was surrounded by people who had been kicked out of their families, um, you know, removed, vilified, but they'd found a community. And I realized how much courage I was surrounded by. And it moved me so much that I came out and I, um, and I moved, I moved from LA to San Francisco to, to get my life going honestly and authentically, but it was a choir and it was being part of a choir. And it was that choral movement that changed the course of my life. Do you see that difference between uh, this? There's two terms that often get used interchangeably and they trip me up. Audience, community. Mm -hmm. What's the difference? (laughs) Uh, Well, your community isn't not necessarily entirely your audience, is it? I mean, we all live in communities. Is that the audience that always shows up? No, there's many different audiences. 
for many different kinds of things. There's the symphony audience, there's the opera audience, there are theater audience, there's musical theater audience, there are chorus audiences. There are audiences that love chamber music and don't want any singers in their chamber music. There are audiences that love solo singers and don't want any chamber music, you know? So it's all community and it's all different audiences within your community, um, but they aren't necessarily always the same thing. But what the arts do is they create an opportunity for community um, and bringing people together with different perspectives. But one of the things that I love about being in an audience um, for any performance of any kind is you're sitting with people in that moment. You don't know how that person voted. You don't know how that person, what that person believes. You also don't know what that person's been through in their life, what their story is. And yet here we are as a community in that theater or performance space about to experience something that will open and up a dialogue and connect us because now we have a common shared experience. We've, we've experienced this thing together. And I don't know if you've ever had that feeling where you introduce yourself to the person mm -hmm. that you're sitting next with and you start talking about the performance. Well, that can change people's lives. It's, it's pretty amazing uh, what it does, but audience and community, they're similar and dissimilar, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. No, you can, you can bring people together to all observe something as an mm -hmm. audience, which feels like it's just coming at us. Right. The community is where the fun stuff kind of happens, <laughs> you know, where you start talking and engaging and it's between one another, you know, yeah. <laughs> talking to versus talking with me. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's some, another way to think about that, but yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah. yeah. So earlier you mentioned um, the piece Faith Disquiet, which of mm -hmm. course IRCSF, we just uh, released that, a recording of that piece on our uh, recent CD. It's a wonderful recording, the whole thing, it's amazing. Thank you, it was yeah. one of the best performances we've given of, of that work. mentioned that you wrote it while you were at UCLA, but then you revised two of the three movements uh, in 2008, which was 11 years after it was originally um, written. What prompted that revision? It wasn't the fact that IOC was going to perform it, I assume. At the it time, <laughs> Jeremy arranged that. So. First of all, I have to be really honest with you. I think I wrote those pieces in like 1987. <laughs> when I was when I was in grad school at UCLA. So, yeah. you know, another lifetime ago. Um, and then, uh, so you guys did them in 01, is that right? Uh, I think we did them in 2009. Okay, And 2009. the scores say that they were revised in 2008. Okay, so I, what I probably did was Jeremy Faust probably came up to me, because he had done, that. He's he was the one who introduced me to your wonderful uh, choir. And, um, he uh, he had made some arrangements of a couple of my songs that you guys mm -hmm. did mm -hmm. and uh, and then invited me to present some pieces. And it had been so long since I'd uh, looked at those uh, pieces that I decided probably to revise them. And so that's why I probably revised them then. And then I don't know remember if I revised them further, but they they were in manuscript up until 2008. So oh, wow. that's one of the reasons they got revised. <laughs> they, and I still write everything in manuscript. So they were had just been sitting on a shelf, you know, with all of my archive. Uh, yeah. And uh, so then they got uh, put into, uh, was, was it Sibelius or Fernelli? I don't know. I don't do that stuff. But uh, right. um, anyway, and so when they were going to be put into, you know, into a music program, I thought, well, maybe I should take another look at them. So I think that's probably what happened. It's hard to remember. It's been a long time now. <laughs> it's true. It's so true. you don't you don't engrave your own pieces? No, I have a I'm lucky enough to build in uh, copying expenses into whatever fee that I'm getting. And uh, I work with I've worked with the same person for 16 years now. His name's Bill Holub, and he also represents uh, me as a publisher. And uh, but he, yeah, I write everything by hand: operas, orchestra scores, everything, mm -hmm. um, and then send them to him. And then he puts them in the machine and sends them back. And then I 
write all over them and send them back. And <laughs> that's, but I, I just, I've never been interested in that part of it, putting it into the program. Um, the creative part for me is putting it on the page, you know, right. uh, using pencil and eraser, you know, yeah. and that's, that's it. And you me said, and the, you know, paper and the pencil and the eraser and the piano and that's it. Right. Yeah. You said you compose near the piano not necessarily right. right at it, but near it so that in case you need to play something or right. hear something. So what are your feelings on composers who do sit at their computer and they write everything right there into the notation software and get to hear some MIDI representation in <laughs> real time as soon as they've written it? That's very dangerous, that? I think, uh, especially for younger composers, uh, because generally that means you're not hearing it first and then putting it into onto the page. And I think it's very important to hear the piece first. Um, you can discover it as you're going, of course. I mean, you're not gonna hear the whole thing outright, um, unless you're Mozart. Um, and he's been dead for a while is what I heard. Um, but- <laughs> um, No, he's hanging with JFK. It's nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, is, uh, take the time to really listen to this piece before you put anything down. I, I, I hear a lot of things when I walk, uh, I find that moving is very important for me when I'm creating. And then I'll sing things into my phone, you know, into the recorder on my phone so that I have it for later. So I don't forget. Mm -hmm. um, and that may not even be the final version of it, but it might be the initial idea that leads me somewhere. So I try to get my ideas away from the piano, away from any machines, except my phone, you know, and then I start to work it out, uh, there and then I put it onto the page and then I'll send it to my copyist and in the end after we've done all the copying and correcting I might ask him for a MIDI file to hear it but mostly to make sure that I did, there aren't any typos and that the tempi are correctly marked you know it's not the the danger of putting it into the machine and listening to the MIDI right like, right away is that's not real life mm -hmm. and something that sounds good in real life might sound terrible on the MIDI or something that sounds really good on the MIDI might sound terrible in real life. You know, you have to get to know these sounds and, and for the people you're writing for, I have to know who I'm writing for from the beginning um, so that I can make it as specific as possible. And then it can be many things, but if it's very broad and uh, undefined, like I don't know who it is, it's, that's going to be that way for the performer and the audience too. It's like, what is this? Clarity, 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 inevitability, surprise, and also just trying to hear it really, really clearly before I hear anyone else do it. I have to hear it in my head. Just why creating the bones of the piece, the composition itself, is the challenging part. Orchestrating to me is like coloring. It's, you know, mm. it, that's the easy part. I, I can write, I can orchestrate eight to 10 hours a day, no problem, and I can be anywhere. But when I'm actually creating the piece and composing, I have to be in my studio. Uh, I don't know how long it's going to take me. I might have an hour of successful time in the studio. I might have six or seven hours. Mm. I, I can't tell. But that's the challenging part is how does it go? What does it sound like? And I have to hear it in my head first before I, I can let it out the door. Because once, ah, once you make one note, play one note on the piano or you hear it done, it's all different, you know? Uh, yeah. It's different than what you imagine. And all of that is about listening. And I think that is really, really important in what we do. I think most of composition, most of creative work is listening, developing your ear, listening to what's going on so that when you make a sound, it has been considered uh, beforehand. That's great. Jake, looking forward, um, you said that music is all about gathering a community. We talked a little bit about community just now, experiencing something on a different level from what we normally do. The performance venues are a place of communal reflection. Looking past COVID, because we've been forced to move these gatherings online, which has removed a layer of that in-person communal reflection. Mm -hmm. um, what's been lost and gained in this online experience, and how has it changed your perspective of the importance of physical performance venues as a place of communal gathering, for better or worse? Oh, it's only enhanced how critical it is to be in the room. All of this is meant to be in the room. So you actually feel the vibration because this is all about music is all about vibrations. That's the miracle of it, right? That's the miracle of taking a Gesualdo score or a Bach score from hundreds of years ago and you sing it and the vibration lives again. That's amazing. What else is like that? 
but it's about being in the room and experiencing that together. There is nothing that can replace that. I don't care how good the technology is. Um, it is all about being in the room. And I think what the pandemic has reinforced is just how critical that is um, to the performing arts and uh, every kind of performing arts. We need to be together in the room. We need to share the vibration. That's what changes our lives. That's what opens our hearts. That's what opens doorways for all of us is feeling that. I don't know if you've ever been in a, in a classroom of elementary school kids when an, a trained opera singer comes in for the first time and opens his or her mouth and out comes the sound and these kids just like, what is that? You know, some of them laugh, but all of them are just startled. And it would not be the same experience online having an opera singer open their mouth and sing through a computer screen. You know, it's that physical vibration and seeing a human being make this sound. It's extraordinary. It's like feeling a choir that, you know, being in a room with all those voices, all those beautiful trained voices singing and listening and in unison trained to do this amazing thing and then delivering it and giving it away so that it enters you and opens your heart. I mean, there's just nothing that can replace that. Mm, what a beautiful sentiment. Mm. And you said the name of the podcast too. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> we did not pay Jake to do that. It is our aspiration as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask um, a question. What, what, would be your dream libretto or literary work that you would like to draw from to write an opera? And obviously you've written a lot of operas and you're working on right now that I can tell that the story is very moving, but something in the, in the perfect world, if you could choose anything, is there a particular libretto or literary work that you'd like to draw from? I, I have a list, but I don't believe in talking about unborn children. (laughs) he could tell us but he'd have to kill us afterwards (laughs) exactly once you once you say it and put it out there all of a sudden the magic and the mystery of it is somehow Mm. changed you know so i do have a list of projects and that inspire and intrigue me that i would love to approach someday um but it has to be the right moment has to be the right collaborators the right team um so I can't tell you, unfortunately. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. Keep it close. We'll, we'll wait. We're waiting with bated <laughs> Me <Exactly>. too. <laughs> it's uh, like the number of people that I say, oh, I can't wait to hear the end of this opera. And you're like, yeah, me either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm living for that. <laughs> uh, uh, Jake, maybe one last thing since we're rounding up our, our time with you sure. here. Um, one thing that we have heard loud and clear throughout all of these conversations we've had with composers, conductors, choristers, everyone, is that the thing that is most lacking and that we're all most looking forward to because of this pandemic is just a sense of joy. Mm-hmm. We just, we want, we, we hunger, we're looking for that moment. Um, Nico mentioned it this morning when he said, it's like when the barns come out in spring and they're all just frolicking and dancing, you know, and there's been so many examples of that in the past of, you know, after wars or, or famines or pandemics where music just sort of comes back. Um, and so we have a little project we're going called uh, the Playlist of Joy. And in our own little way, we kind of wanted to spread that out there and kind of maybe give people a little bit of that, sort of preload that sentiment for us so that we can access that feeling. Um, if you're able to access that feeling for yourself right now, that sort of sense of joy, what music is doing that for you? What, what, what songs or what pieces of music anywhere along the spectrum um, are things that you go to where you're like, I just need a little bit of something to get me out of bed in the morning? Um, well, I have to tell you, first of all, uh, we, we talked a little bit about this. I don't know if we had begun yet, but um, this time of year is my favorite time of year, right mm. at the edge of the front edge of spring, where things are blossoming and the sky seems so clear. The days are getting longer, which I love. Um, and there's just this sense of optimism and possibility uh, everywhere. Um, the the music that goes on in my head all the time, of course, is the stuff that I'm writing in the moment, uh, which no one else is hearing. I'm the only one hearing it at the time. <laughs> but if it if it isn't somehow inspiring me and bringing me joy, then it isn't the right thing. But when my husband and I are cooking dinner at home, our Pandora station is the Linda Ronstadt station, which plays all of our favorite songs from. <laughs> 
the 70s. <laughs> and oh, we love the Linda Ronstadt station. I love her. We love Carly Simon. We love Joni. We love uh, James Taylor. We love Barbara. We love all the singers from that from that era. And uh, it's just, uh, that makes me very, very happy, all that music, um, that I can sing along with it, <laughs> that people are carrying a tune. <laughs> <laughs> I, lo- I love that trio the Linda Ronstadt and the Emily Harris Dolly Parton oh. I, that I always put that on it's, yeah. it is pure joy I mean yeah. it's so, so beautiful it's so joyful and it's so connected and fun and there's just there's this impulse of uh, there's just such energy in it and I just uh, you know it, it takes me back to a little more naive sweeter time as well you know, I think music does that for us. You know, yeah. and it so, doesn't ask too much of you either. It yeah. just sort of gives. It just yeah. gives. But yeah. that isn't that what you know? That's what I was talking about. We give it away, right? Mm-hmm. We're looking for things that feed us, that give to us. And so our job as creative artists is to find something that inspires us and then give it away so it can feed someone. You know, and uh, just like. Linda Ronstadt still does. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna add Linda to we're gonna add Linda to the playlist of joy. Thank you for that. <laughs> Absolutely. So obviously, you know, everything's been put on hold due to COVID. But um, are there any you know hopefully upcoming performances or releases that we should ask tell our listeners to be on the lookout for? I have actually several releases right now. Um, we just released this project with Margaret Atwood called "Songs for Murdered Sisters," and we filmed it at the 16th Street uh, train station in Oakland. And it's available on Marquee TV through Houston Grand Opera's website for the next month. Um, it's a pretty extraordinary piece uh, with a, a kind of a harrowing story behind it, but it yielded really beautiful, transformative stuff. Uh, uh, also, uh, a piece that I wrote a year ago uh, called Intonations, uh, Viol- Songs from the Violins of Hope, was just mm. released on Pentatone, and it features uh, these amazing instruments that were that have been restored they were played by jews in concentration camps and have been restored by this amazing team in tel aviv and i wrote a piece for them um with uh sasha cook as the singer and daniel hope as a soloist and that piece is out right now Opera Three Decembers was recorded by Opera San Jose, and they're still streaming that. It stars Susan Graham. And uh, I'm about to go on a uh, recital tour with uh, the amazing mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton. And uh, I wrote a piece for her uh, that has texts by five, five, very, uh, five women you probably wouldn't expect texts from. And uh, it's called What I Miss the Most. And they're texts that were written last April when we had been about a month into lockdown. And uh, the texts are by Joyce DiDonato, Patti Lapone, Sister Helen Prejean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and uh, Kathleen Kelly, who is a pianist and conductor. But, uh, and it, it, it's interesting that piece. Uh, I'm glad I, I asked for the texts when I did, because then it was before we knew the extent of what was going to happen and all the horror of last summer and then the fall was upon us. Um, and so you look back at that time and it does feel like this sort of sweetly naive, even though it was dark and it was hard. We, it was before all hell broke loose. Anyway, so those are a few pieces. And then I'm workshopping my new opera this summer in Boulder. And hmm. it's supposed to open this fall at Houston, but we don't know. You know, yeah. it might, it might, it might, it might not. And then uh, other things have been postponed to future seasons, but I'm, we're just trying to take advantage of walking every day and enjoying enjoying life and my husband and I actually having time together because he was in Beach Blanket Babylon for over 20 years as King Louis. And so when the show closed at the end of uh, 2019, all of a sudden we could have dinner together. (laughs) (laughs) And and so we get to go for walks together and have dinner every night, which has been kind of amazing. We've been together 22 years and that's the first time we've been able to do that. So um, just enjoying all of that as well. But uh, yeah, lots going on, still writing quite a bit. When you're out walking with your husband, do you ever, every so often, you have to tell him, "Hey, wait, hang on," and pull your phone out and sing a little bit of stuff in? <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, or I'll tell him, "You just go on ahead. I have to sing something in my phone right now," <laughs> and then great. I do it really, really quiet because I don't want anyone to hear until it's for sure. I don't want anyone to hear. Right. 
That's so cool. And for folks who are interested in finding all of those things, um, we'll be sure to put um, in our liner notes in the program notes, we'll have links to all of those things available okay. for folks who are listening to. Great. Um, where can people find you online? Uh, just uh, jakehege.com, you know, my website. I actually have no social media. Bless. Thank so, God. Uh, <laughs> Me neither. I am a very, very, very private person. <laughs> uh, and so, and I, you know, I, I had Facebook for from the time it started until 2014, I logged off and I haven't been back on because it's just too public. I'm just, yeah. I, I'm so private and I just, I cherish the privacy and the quiet. So. Awesome. Well, we appreciate you um, sharing a bit of yourself with us today um, on this podcast because it's really great to, to hear about your methods and your inspiration. And my madness. <laughs> sure. I mean, all the talented people in the world are a little bit mad, right? <laughs> it's great to visit with both of you. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Awesome. All right. Have a okay, great night, cool. Jake. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the In Unison Podcast. If you've got ideas for our podcast, please send us a message at ideas at inunisonpodcast.com. And who knows, maybe Chorus Dolores will ask us to talk about it during announcements. <laughs> In Unison is sustained, nourished, and fostered by you, our loyal and loving listeners. And don't forget to subscribe to In Unison on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at InUnisonPod. And hey, if you like what you heard, tell a friend or a section mate. Thanks again for tuning in. See you soon. Tour performance schedules distributed by Chorus Dolores, who's wondering if anyone else plans to visit the Harmonica Museum. In Unison is produced and recorded by Mission Orange Studios. Our theme music is Mr. Puffy, written by Avi Bortnik, arranged by Paul Kim, and performed by the Danish vocal jazz ensemble Dynamic on their debut album, This Is Dynamic. Special thanks to Paul Kim for permission. Be sure to check them out at www.dynamicjazz.dk.